Okay, so we're going to start in John chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. Eventually, we're going to go all the way to 41, but I'm going to give you a piece. You're going to say to yourself, how can she ever do this in less than an hour? It's going to be a miracle. <laughs> so everyone turn to John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, high noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to, into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the wa woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Snort. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his son and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to her, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Okay, so everyone get your map out. Because Jesus is wandering around, and I know I can't do, I can't do the whole book of John, but you, I, if you're doing any part of your homework, you're reading John a whole bunch. So we were in John 1, and now we're in John 4. So you have to, on your map, get it out here. I, you just have to know that Palestine is a very small place. It's only 120 miles long from north to south. That's as far as Stuart to Homestead, as the crow flies. It's not that far. Uh, in John 1.28, you can find Bethany. Bethany is just south of the Sea of Galilee. We have Bethany across from Jordan. That's where they were baptizing. In John 2, you have to find Canaan. It's over here in the middle of Galilee, right there, which is west of the Sea of Galilee. And then find Copernicum. Copernicum is right at the top of the Sea of Galilee. That's the northern tip. And then Jerusalem, which is west of the Dead Sea. So this is where Jesus has all been. Now, in John 4, Jesus decides to go back to Galilee. He probably has spent about nine months in Judea. But he's becoming very famous, and that's drawing attention of the Pharisees. And so Jesus, and that's why he says in verse 1, Therefore, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. He needed, but he needed to go through Samaria. So first of all, he knew. 
When the Lord knew, um, first of all, it wasn't his time. So he knew, it, he knew that it was time to start going back to Galilee where he can have more of his public ministry without the danger of the Pharisees and the scribes and all that. Because they were, everything, this was fermenting, okay? Um, when the, uh, so John made and baptized, Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Now, remember we, I quoted this last week, you probably don't remember, but the end of chapter 3 Remember, there was a little scuffle about how Jesus' disciples and John's disciples, John's disciples say, hey, he's, he's getting a little bit more attention. And that's when John said, he must increase and I must decrease. So because of all this, Jesus says, okay, we're going to go back to Galilee. Um, I have to tell you, though, that this whole point of baptism, remember we said this was a, a rite that the Jews did only with Gentiles to turn them into Jewish Christians, um, Jewish, uh, Jewish belief, Jewish, Jewish people. Um, so, but this was um, Jesus having his disciples do this was kind of a precursor of what was going to happen in Acts. And in fact, when Jesus did said the Great Commission, go therefore and baptize. Okay, so I'm just saying this. This was kind of a cool thing um, that he was already identifying baptizing in connection with repentance, cleansing. And his work, his work. So he needed to go through Samaria. Okay, so he didn't really need to, need to. Um, it is the shortest route, but Jesus knew that there was a divine appointment in Samaria. Um, a lot of times what we think might be, you know, like so, like, like God just didn't get this right. So many of those times our divine appointments, if we would just pay attention. Um, so the, it was the shortest wrap. So if you look at your map, you can just see, okay, the shortest map is right through Samaria to go from, from Jerusalem to Galilee. Um, let me just say, though, that the Samaritans, and, the, and John mentions it in his gospel, nobody liked the Samaritans. Um, the Samaritans were half-breeds when, okay, go back with me to Old Testament history, Remember when all the prophets said, if you don't obey, if you don't obey, I'm going to send people and they're going to take you captive? Remember that? Well, the Syrians were half of that. The ten tribes were, um, uh, were decimated in 722 B.C. The Assyrian came and pretty much carted everyone off. And the people that they left there were kind of like the lowest of the low and... Um, they put, brought their own people back to, to reign over them. So these were half-breeds that basically stayed there after the Assyrian captivity. Um, they kind of decided that they would keep, like, they, they believed in the ten, the five books of the Pentateuch. They believed in the first five books of the Bible. Um, but they also believed in a lot of other superstitious and idolatrous ways from the other people that lived with them. So it was kind of a hybrid kind of religion. And because of that, the Jews hated it. They hated the Samaritans more than they hated the Gentiles. And then underneath all of that was women, but we're gonna get there in a minute. <laughs> so <clears throat> he had a divine appointment. Um, so in five and six, he came to the city of Samaria which is called Sychar, near a plot of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. 
Now Joseph's well, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, being wearied from his journey, sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So let me just say that Sychar is another word for Shechem, and the town of Shechem is all over the Old Testament. That is the place when, when um, God called Abraham to leave Babylonia and come to the Promised Land. That's kind of where they landed, right, at Shechem. That's where the first altar was made. Um, that also was the place where Jacob um, bought, a, uh, bought some land that wound up being in, after the um, Hebrew captivity in Egypt, Jacob, they brought Joseph's bones back and buried him there, and they're still there, supposedly. Um, but anyway, so this is, this is a place that everyone knew about and had a lot of Old Testament. There's like six references to this place. There's more than six, but I have six. <laughs> um, but I'm worried about my time, so I'm not going to read them to you. Um, if anytime you want more, though, you just hang afterwards. I always stay after, and I can just we can just go into all the fun facts. Um, but he was Jesus was wearied from his journey, and the Greek word there is really wearied. He was really tired. He was really tired, and it's interesting because John always points out. Jesus' frailty in the flesh, um, that he's hungry, that he's tired, that he's weary, because he wants to make a huge point here, because at this point when he's writing in 85 to 90 AD, Gnosticism, which again, which the Christian or the Jewish form of Gnosticism, which was a heresy, claimed that Jesus wasn't really a real man. Because in the Gnostic way of thinking, all the good things were spirit and all the bad things were fleshly. So Jesus, John makes a point a lot of times to talk about Jesus in the flesh. So he, um, so he, sets, he sits by the well. And uh, one of my favorite quotes here is, um, while our evangelists insist that it is the divine word that became flesh in Jesus, he insists at the same time that that divine word became what that what the divine word became was flesh. So again, we have the hundred percent God, hundred percent man. That's that's what the incarnation is. If you do like ninety-five five, if you do it, nothing works. Hundred percent, hundred percent. So notice the contrast in this picture. And I told you John was a book of contrasts. Um, John Jesus is thirsty, and this is kind of he's very paradoxical. He's very thirsty but he promises living water. He's the one that needs assistance. Sir, you don't even have a bucket. That's what the girl says to him. But yet he offers assistance. He's the one that hung, is hungry, but he won't eat the food that they bring because he has his own food. There's a whole lot of paradoxes in this beautiful passage. Um, so what happens? We're into verse 7 through 9. So a woman of Samaria comes to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away from the city to buy food. And when the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So first of all, she's coming. It's high noon. We, the, the well of Jacob's well is a little out of town. So she's walking out of town, high noon. And why is she doing that? We all believe, most commentators believe, because of her past. She doesn't hang with all the other ladies in the town who typically get their water at the beginning of the day when it's cool out. So she's all by herself, kind of isolated, coming to get her own water uh, when nobody else is there. She, so I just want you to know that she 
is a social outcast. So who do we think are social out? You know, we think of, I'm just saying we need to get a picture on this. Is that a homeless person? Is that a woman of ill, you know, of the night? What is this? What do we define? But I'm just telling you that Jesus sought her out and went all the way through and went through Samaria for her, just for her. And uh, so where, whoever you might be thinking, uh, whatever you might be thinking, know that Jesus has the power to save everyone. Um, Okay, so the Apostle John moves, okay, and you know, you have to love this picture, because remember, John is writing, and he picks the seven stories. He's picking the seven passages, the seven miracles. He's picking these things because he's writing well after all the other Gospels. Even the book of Acts was written, and so he's trying to get things that they don't know. So the, the, the chapter before this, you have Jesus meeting who? Nicodemus. He is the exact opposite of the Samaritan woman. He is affluent. He is the cat's meow. He is the fair. He pull, he's a member of the 70 of the Sanhedrin. He is the God at all, according to Jewish. And Jesus says, uh, you must be born again. He's like, uh, what does that really mean? Saint, Jesus could not have found a more opposite person to talk to. And again, John is, again, starting with his universal gospel here. He... Um, so he, so Jesus broke down a lot of barriers, and so should we. Um, that Christians ever would be put their nose up in the air is just unfathomable if we really understand what the doctrine of grace is. The fact is, is that we have been pardoned so much of so much sin. How is it that we can stand in judgment of anybody? Um, but I'm just saying that. The, the church sometimes is known for that. And shame on us. Okay, so what did he break down? The first one was race. Okay, in one bound, he leaped over the berries of national prejudice and offered his most precious wares to this woman. That's so beautiful. Two, religion. The Samaritans had their own religion. We're going to talk a little bit more as we get in the passage. They had their own thing going, okay? Um, they had left temple worship. They made their own temple. The third barrier was sex, okay? He talked to a woman. Now, a good rabbi, they even had a name, they, had, they called these, some, some rabbis, bruised and battered, bruised rabbis, and they were the rabbis who would close their eyes when they saw a woman so they'd run into things, okay? This is how much they did not really esteem women. Um, Barclay writes that the rabbi so despised women that they thought them capable, they, they thought them incapable of receiving any real teaching. So they said, better that the words of the law should be burned than delivered to a woman. So you have no idea how Jesus liberated us, okay? You have no idea. If you wanna have an idea, go visit Saudi Arabia. They just learned how to drive, okay? And, and, and the little girl who went to school and almost got killed and assassinated her, uh, these, this is the way they, they were, and they, some people still are like that, okay? Um, and the fourth thing, he, the barrier, it was status. No decent man, let alone a rabbi, would be seen talking to a woman alone, Not even a decent woman. In fact, the rabbis wouldn't even talk to their wives in publics. 
<laughs> that was their thing, you know. They were just so much better. Um, so, if Jesus looked for years, he couldn't find one more likely candidate to be ignored and overlooked than this woman. And yet, he went to her. I just, you know, in chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, by the way, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him. So he's talking about love, and now he's showing it in chapter 4. What does that love look like in chapter 3? He's showing it in chapter 4. Case in point. <clears throat> this is the beginning of the universality of the gospel. This is when people are starting to say, wow, this is not just for Jews. This is for everyone. And this is not just for everyone like all us little good, decent people. This is for everyone. <coughs> From the top of Nicodemus to the bottom of the woman at the well. Jesus' gospel is for everyone. And let me tell you, our world needs to hear that. Um, let me just tell you a fun thing. Um, John, because John's writing this, and this is a, a piece of literary art, in my opinion. Um, he, Jesus says things, and, he's, and, he, and he writes them down so beautifully. Um, and there's so many things in this gospel that you're just going to love as you discover them. But one of the things, he has like a way of, about him. Like, somebody will come and ask him a question, and he answers it in a way that nobody understands. And so then they ask him again, and then he answers it in a way that still nobody understands. This is kind of what happened. This is exactly what happened when G with Nicodemus and the, you know, you must be born again. What do you mean by that? You know, how can I do that? And again, they're all thinking Jesus in physical, literal terms, and Jesus is trying to elevate them into the spiritual world that he lives in, where God is, and saying that there's a bigger truth here than what you can see, touch, feel, and taste. Okay? So this is exactly the same exact um, uh, way about it. And one of the things that I really like uh, is it says uh, that Jesus' unusual way of teaching is the most effective way. For as someone once said, there are certain truths, truths which a man cannot accept. He must discover them for himself. And let me just say to you as you read John, there are going to be times that you don't get it. There's times I don't get it. And I've been reading it for like a year now. He wants us to discover, and that's a process that we are with him in doing. And that's when we're abiding and we're, and we're asking and we come, to, and come before him and ask before we read and say, you know, Jesus, show me more of who you are so I can know you better, so I can respect you more, whatever it is. When we come, he will move that, but it's not instant. So don't, don't be all about the instant, okay? And don't be telling me, oh, God didn't work. You just haven't lived long enough, girls. That's a problem. And as I'm old, I can totally tell you, David said, I'm old, I'm, yeah, I was young, and I was old, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. See, he lives, if you live long enough, God will, his point will be made. You just have to live long. Okay, <clears throat> so Jesus answered, and we're going to do verses 10 to 12. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, and who is it that says to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and this well is deep. Where do you then get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, 
who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his license? Are you? Are you? Now, first of all, I, I just love this. Jesus is the master evangelism, evangelist, okay? And the first thing he does here is he makes her curious. And he makes her curious. He's like fishing. He's putting out that hook out there. Fishing. And he makes her curious about the things of God. He said, if you knew the gift of God, she's listening. He made her curious about who Jesus was. And who is it that said to you? And then he makes her curious about what he could give her. You, he would have given you living water. Um, I'm just saying that... Uh, you can study this, and this is a great way to meet people <laughs> and talk to them and share your faith. Because, and, but let me just tell you, you got to go to the well, okay? F.F. Um, F. Brew writes, F.F. Bruce writes, the woman's fail, failure to comprehend, comprehend Jesus' words about living water is comparable to Nicodemus' failure to comprehend, comprehend his words about new birth. Everyone is thinking literally and not wishing to enter into the spiritual realm. He would have given you living water. Now in ancient times, living water was, they called it living water, it was, they meant a spring. It was this, that bubbled up, okay? Um, but Jesus actually is making a wordplay because he meant spiritual water that quenches a spiritual thirst and gives spiritual life. Um, in the Old Testament, living water was sometimes an, uh, associated with Jehovah. He was called the fountain of living waters. And that's in Jeremiah 2.13 and Jeremiah 17.13. Okay, he's called the fountain of living waters. But um, in Jeremiah 2.13, Jeremiah, who is the weeping prophet, because he's just, he is living right when the Assyrians and the Babylonians out of the captivity time. So he is the weeping prophet. And he says to, to the Israel at this time, he says, For my people, for the Israelites, have committed two evils. They have, number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Number two, they have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. <coughs> now let me just tell you, if this does not describe America, I just do not know what it is. <laughs> we, too, have forsaken, as a country, the, living, the fountain of living water. And what have we done? We have hewn out many cisterns. And we are constantly, I am amazed how we are surprised that none of them hold water. Um, let me just tell you that never before, there's a hopelessness about our country and our, especially our youth. There's a hopelessness that I've never seen before. As a guidance counselor, I was always so paranoid um, when I dealt with suicide. Um, I always had kids in my office and I had to, I, it was my deal to evaluate and call parents and call administrators and call, call anybody that I needed to call to make sure this kid was safe. Um, but it is epidemic right now. And I think suicide is like a number one uh, sign that people have no hope. They have no hope. Um, let me just tell you that I looked up some statistics here. And um, there are more soldiers 
died by their own hand in 2018 than by the enemy or even in accidental death. Uh, total being 101 soldier deaths compared to 321 suicides in the year 2018. In 2017, the CDC said that um, there was 47,173 recorded suicides. That's recorded suicides, okay? Um, so basically in 2017, more people killed themselves than probably were killed in the Vietnam War. Um, right now, between 1999 and 2014, there has been uh, an increase of 24% of suicides. And right now, it's, we are at the highest rate recorded in 28 years. In teenagers, suicide is the third leading, leading cause of death in ages 10 to 14. It is the second cause of death in college students and for people between 25 and 34. I'm just saying, what we have this water that we have, there is a whole world out there that needs this water. But what, what they've done is they've said, no, 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 I don't need God. I don't need, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet my own needs. And so what they're doing is they take, they take whatever happens to be around and they're just pouring it. And what's happening, you'll notice soon, hopefully. Oh, there, here you're noticing. I'm making a big mess. Yeah, I'm trying to make a big mess here. Okay, so they're saying, oh, well, that's not really working. So let me try something else, okay? And, all, and, this, and I must need to do this faster. I'll just keep trying something else. Does drugs work? No, drugs don't work. Does partying work? I, 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 I can't get over how much the music today is all about partying and illicit sex. I'm just like, are you really getting, getting me? So I'm, I'm trying all these things, and, I, and I'm surprised. I'm stunned. I, I think to myself, oh, I just need to do one more thing. And the world, this is the world today. And we have the fountain of living water, and we're ashamed to talk about it. It's a shame on us. Okay, so here's, I've tried all these things, but what's happening? Because the problem, ladies, <laughs> is not with what I'm putting in. The problem is with the bucket. And we solved that problem last week because that was what the Lamb of God did. He died for the sins of the world. And he basically gave us something that we could never get ourselves. And that is a container that only he fills. A perfect vacuum, Pascal says, that only Jesus Christ can fill. He is that. And that, ladies, is what the world needs to hear. Um, so, the soul's deep thirst for God himself. Um, oh, let me just tell you. Oh, okay, so let me talk about Robin Williams for a minute, okay? Robin Williams had everything this world says. He, he had all the cups, all the cups in the entire world. And yet, he was bereft, he was empty, and he killed himself. He is a perfect example of what the world says is going to make you happy. If you could just have enough riches, if you could just be famous enough, if you could just be this, you're going to be. And, and so Robin Williams is my case in point. Did it work for him? No, it does Because it doesn't work, because these things don't work. And let me just tell you, in Christian world, okay, we have Christian things. Oh, you just need to, you know, 
do this little, this, this, this little devotional, or you need to listen to so-and-so on the TV because he's going to do this. There's Christian versions of this empty bucket as well. And I am just telling you that the only thing that is going to satisfy you is Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. I'm just telling you right now. And that is what Ecclesiastes, who is written by Solomon, who was the wisest man of the world, he wrote in Ecclesiastes 2, 10 through 11, and this is his testimony. He was rich enough to actually do this. He was the Robin Williams of his day. And it says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and it was my, and my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. For there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I'm just telling you, yeah, it's bleak. But then we have Jesus. Then we have Jesus. Um, Jeremiah 17, 13 says, Oh, Israel, hope, the hope of Israel, all who, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. F.F. F. Bruce writes, The soul's deepest thirst is for God himself, who made us, so that we could never be satisfied without him. Christ satisfies a man not by banishing his thirst, which would be to stunt the soul's growth, but by bestowing upon him the gift of his spirit as an inward source of satisfaction, which constantly is being renewed and supplies each recurrent need of refreshment. That's what we have, ladies. In this barren world, That's what we have. Um, Barclay writes, In every man there is a nameless, unsatisfied longing, the vague discontent. This is that something lacking. Don't you see that? I see that. Um, Augustine wrote, Our hearts being restless until they find rest in thee. See, this is a thirst that we have that only Jesus Christ can satisfy. Um, Psalms 42, 1 through 2, as a deer pants for its flowing stream, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? Isaiah 44, 3. For I will pour out water on this thirsty land and streams upon the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 55, 1, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. So Jesus parlays um, this woman's, you know, looking at him saying, and who are you? Like, wait a minute, you're the needy one here. (laughs) You're the one that's thirsty, that has no bucket, okay, and it's talking to me like a woman, yeah, you are, and Jesus is saying, oh no, you're just, you're just not seeing it correctly. May we see it correctly. May we see it correctly. Um, So in verse 13 through 15, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up until everlasting life. And the woman said to her, Sir, 
Give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So Jesus is saying, is picturing how this, this well, this well is, is only, is only going to assuage your thirst for just a little bit of time. My, my, my water, that's going to be forever. Um, and because you're, not, you're never going to thirst because this water of Jesus, that Jesus shall give. Now let me tell you, um, in John 7, you can turn there if you want to flip over. John 7, he makes specific, he, he talks, Jesus talks a little bit more about this, wa- this water. And verses 37 through 39, he says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in were yet to, were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had, was not glorified. This is a gift that we have, this living water that comes to us, and this is something that will quench every thirst. Um, and Jesus, in, let's flip it back to John 4 and get to verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband <laughs> and come here. And the woman answered, said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, oh, yeah, <laughs> you have well said this. I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you have now is not your husband. In this you have spoken truly. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. So first of all, (laughs) I love this. Go call your husband. Now, this was not a strange request because it was not to be, you know, these men were not to be seen talking to women all by themselves. You know, it's kind of, that was kind of the thing in the day. So him saying this, but uh, honestly, it was straining the boundaries of cultural propriety but it was also Jesus, because Jesus is God and he's omniscient, he knew all of what was going on. And so he knew that the big thing that was going to obstruct her from getting this water, this living water, was her own sinfulness. So he's bringing it out, okay? I have no husband. <laughs> okay, Jesus knew. The one whom you have now is not your husband. Jesus brought up this embarrassing issue because her sinful life had to be confronted. Now, I'm just saying that when Jesus comes, he does a work, and he does a work, but there, there is repentance. There is, yes, I have done something wrong. Um, in our society, especially with cultural Christianity, oh my gosh, there's the whole blurring of that. You know, all things, all sins are, oh, those are just little sins, you know? And I'm just saying that truth is truth is truth. Is truth, and it doesn't change. And um, this woman was living in a, a, a lifestyle that Jesus condemned, just like He condemns our lifestyle when we're hypocritical and when we. And that has to be addressed. So He addressed it. Um, so, so this is her response. Okay, this is complete sidestepping. Verses twenty through twenty-six. So he says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and the Jews said that in Jerusalem is the place you ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, now woman, I told you this before. Well, I told my Sunday school classes. Woman, the way they say woman is kind of like we say lady. It's not like derogatory. It's like lady. lady. Um, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship in this mountain nor in Jerusalem 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he's going to tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am. That's really what he said. There's no, there's no he in the original Greek. I am. I am. Um, so let's go back. Our fathers worship in this mountain. Okay, just let me just tell you, this is she's sidestepping right now. He talked about her sinfulness, and she's saying, oh, you're a prophet. Let's just talk about where we're supposed to worship. Let's just get this thing going, you know, because um, so, we're going to have this discussion, and you're going to tell me that I need to worship in Jerusalem, and I'm going to need to tell you that I'm going to worship on Mount Gerizim, okay? Mount Gerizim was, they built a temple, like I said, back in the olden days when Nehemiah came back, to build the temple, the Samaritans offered to help with the Nehemiah. Mm, mm, yeah, mm, mm. So they got all mad. They left. They made their own temple. That temple was, destroy, <coughs> uh, was destroyed by the Maccabees in 128. So there, there's this whole big concept. And let me just tell you, these are, when you're talking about people in the Middle East, this was 120 years ago, but this happened like yesterday compared to them. Okay, so they're still mad that the Jews destroyed their temple, and they and she's ready to, to spoil that and have this little fight going on here. And Jesus completely <laughs> destroys her argument, and he says, "Oh, whatever, <laughs> whatever." Sometimes it's good to say whatever when somebody's getting all riled up, you know. Say whatever. You, you know, I always say, you can think that. I don't, you know, I'm cool with that, you know. <laughs> I'm not agreeing, but I'm not arguing. Um, so Jesus sidestepped and he says, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. So the greater work, <laughs> um, the greater work of Jesus that would, is going to bring a more, a greater and more spiritual uh, worship. Uh, one of my commenters says, it is that one of the greatest announcements ever made by our Lord was made to a sinful woman is just crazy. Like he should have, this just should have been coming to the temple with the high priest. And this is, this is the, that's, that's the place of this pronouncement. But Jesus does everything backwards because he wants us to think differently than we think. It's not just about the right answer. It's about how we get there. And so Jesus says, um, Okay, so that doesn't matter. Um, the important question is not where you worship, but how you worship. Uh, William Cowper, who was an English poet in the 1700s, he said, Jesus, where thy people meet, there they behold thy mercy seat. Where they seek, thou art found, and in every place is hallowed ground. That Jesus came to shake up the system, and he we, the repercussions of this we're still feeling today. Um, so he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Um, let's just talk about that for a minute. Um, if you didn't hear Jeremy's sermon, you need to listen to it, because it was such a beautiful sermon about worshiping him in spirit and truth. And... Um, F.F. F. Bruce writes, God is spirit, 
It's not merely that he's a spirit among other spirits. Rather, God himself is pure spirit. And the worship in which he takes delight in is, a, is spiritual worship. Okay, It's not things. It's not a place. It's not sacrifices. David said the sacrifices that you're looking for are a broken and contrite heart. They're not physical things. Okay, um, Sincere heart devotion wherever and whenever is found is indispensable if men and women would present to God worship, which he can accept. It's about our heart. And to worship in truth is, it's, it's not pretense. It's not, I'm going through the motions. I'm standing because they're standing. I'm raising my hand because they're raising my hands. This is genuine, transparent Holy God, you are there, and I, you are everything, and I am nothing, and somehow you love me, and I just can't say thank you enough. That's what he's talking about. And that was so different than the temple sacrifices, and that was so different than what, they, what the Samaritans did on Mount Gerizim, which their temple was even destroyed, but they still worship. Um, so Barclay writes, Jesus points to true worship. He said, God is spirit. Immediately, if a man grasps that, a new floodlight breaks over him. If God is spirit, God is, then man's gifts to God must be gifts of the spirit. So nothing physical will work anymore. The true worship is when men, through his spirit, attains to friendship and intimacy with God. True worship is when the spirit, the immortal and invisible part of man, speaks to and meets with God, who is immortal and invisible. That's true worship. I who speak to you am he. That was his last, that was his statement. Uh, John MacArthur writes, um, the he is not in the original text. I who speak to you am. Here's another one of the I am statements that are so common to this gospel. 23 times our Lord says, I am. I am. Is that reminding you of anything? Yeah. When when Jesus when God when Moses met God at the burning bush, he said, "Well, tell me your name." He said, "I am that I am." That's what we call Jehovah, is Yahweh. I am. Jesus is claiming here and many times through this gospel that he is God. So verses twenty-seven through thirty. At this time, um, at this point, his disciples came. Okay, so the narrative continues. I love this. Okay, so Jesus talked to this woman of a... Then his disciples come with the food. Because, you know, remember they were sent to the food. Because Jesus was really tired and very weary. So they brought him food and they noticed, oh, he's talking to a woman. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but it's so interesting because they know Jesus. They, they've been with Jesus for almost a year now. So they've got Jesus a little figured out. So they're not going to ask. So it says, at this point, the disciples came, and they marveled that he was talking with the woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking to her? And the woman left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city, and they came to him. Okay, so first of all, uh, the woman, you know, the disciples are sort of like, hmm, that's interesting. The woman leaves her water pot. Now, let me just tell you, people don't leave their water pot unless they're coming back. So this was women. This was her saying, I'm going to leave this because I got, I got some important news. And these are the people that shunned her. And she's going to brazenly go in there, 
guns blasting, saying, I met this guy. I think he's the Messiah. Why don't you come and see? Okay? And he told me, she's not, she's not covering her sin anymore. He told me everything. Y'all all know. That's why I'm alone by the well at noon. <laughs> but he told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? Um, I want to read this quote because it's so good. The living water which the woman received from Jesus had certainly become an overflowing fountain in her life. And others were coming to share the refreshment that she had just begun to enjoy. Let us not grow weary in well-doing. The most unlikely soul may prove the most effective witness. Amen? Amen. 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 Some, of, some of that's us. It's about the change. So verses 30 through 31 through 43. In the meantime, I don't think it's 43, but anyway. In the meantime, the disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to him and one another, has anybody else brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. So he talks about the food which you don't know of. Um, Jesus is telling you the secret of his strength. <coughs> and it would be the secret of our strength, too, is to do the will of God. He, he came to that well weary, and now he's totally jazzed. And what happened? Did he eat anything? Did he drink anything? No. But he shared the gospel, and he did what God wanted him to do. And that totally got him firing on all sides. He didn't need one of those caffeine drinks, ladies. He, doing the will of him who sent was like food for him. Um, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Um, Barclay records the great keynote of Jesus' life is his submission to the will of God. His uniqueness lies in the very fact, fact that he was the only person who ever lived, who will ever live, that was perfectly obedient to God's will. Now, in the vernacular, I'm going to tell you something, and it's going to make, because we all think God's will, and we think something very lofty up there. Jesus never got his own way. He always did what God wanted. And many times, that was not what he wanted. So he was all about pleasing his father. Um, he was not like Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. He was not like that. I, he only wanted to do what God told him to do. And he says this a million times. If it's a, current, a theme throughout John. My, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In John 6, 38, he says, just two chapters later, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Two more chapters later, John 8, 28 and 29, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, <coughs> then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority, but I speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me because he has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him if that was Jesus's focus should that not be our focus as well Paul writes in 2nd Timothy he says you were supposed to be good soldiers and a good soldier doesn't get 
entangled with these affairs of men. This is a Second Timothy two, probably one and two. Said, I don't get. But he seeks to please his commanding officer. How many times, ladies, could we <laughs> do we get tangled in doing all kinds of good things, and we forget that we only have one person to make happy, and that is not your husband, <laughs> and that is not your children. Amen. That would be the good Lord. And if he's happy, everything else will work out in its own perfect timing. Everything else. Um, Jesus did not, his focus, he did not focus primarily on his work, the need, strategy, techniques, or even the needy soul. He, first and foremost, his focus was on the will of him who sent me. And then he says this beautiful sentence. He says, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That word finish is derivative of testelestai, which is the word he spoke from the cross when he said, it is finished. Isn't that beautiful? Um, so let's, let's continue on. Verses 34 through 41 do not say there are four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper might rejoice together. For there is a saying that holds true, one sows and the other reaps. I have sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into the labor. And many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him and asked him to stay with them, he stayed for two days. And many more believed because of his word. Let me just say that this is the same time when Jesus is going to all, all, all the Galilean towns, okay? Even his hometown. And they kicked him out. They... They left. They didn't want him. And here the Samaritans, come on and stay a while. <laughs> Teach us. Teach us. Um, let me just tell you, the end of that story we know is when Jesus is very busily getting ready to um, ascend to the Father in Acts 1, he looks at the crowd and he says, now you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and where? Oh, yeah. Don't forget my friends, the Samaritans, to the end of the earth. And then it, Acts 8 talks about how Philip, Philip was this person that didn't sow and reap that one that Jesus referred to. He goes in verses 4 through 8, he goes to Samaria, and there's a huge revival there. Um, and it says, so there was much joy in the city. So this is what Jesus started was just the beginning, just planting the seed, was just the beginning of this wellspring that came up from the Samaritan people. Okay, so that's the conclusion um, of the text. So where are we in our portrait of Jesus? Because remember, my whole goal here is not to teach you fun facts about the New Testament that you've never heard, even though I do love finding them. <laughs> My whole purpose is to painstakingly paint 
a portrait or uncover this portrait that John has painted 2,000 years ago um, so that we can know him better. That's the whole, it's a form of friendship with who, who this man is, this Jesus. Um, we know that he's the word. We, did, we found that two weeks ago. We know he's the lamb that comes and takes away the sins of the world. Um, A.W. Tozier, famous Bible scholar, says, The gospel according to John reveals the helplessness of the human mind before the great mystery of God. Paul teaches that God can be known only as the Holy Spirit, that's our living water, performs in a seeking heart the act of self-disclosure. The yearning to know what cannot be known, to comprehend the incomprehensible, to touch and taste the inapproachable, arises from the image of God in the nature of man. He created us with this thirst so that he could come and fill it. He created, and there's something that resonates with everybody in, in this population. Um, okay, so let me finish my quote. This yearning to know what cannot be known, to comprehend the incomprehensible, to touch and taste the inapproachable, arises from the image of God in the nature of man. Deep calls into deep. And though polluted and landlocked by the fall, the soul senses its origin and longs to return to the source. How can this be realized? The answer of the Bible is simply through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christ and by Christ and through Christ, God affects complete self-disclosure. The seed plot, and I've said this before, of this whole gospel is John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. So my, one of my favorite commentators says, no one has seen God except the only begotten. He has led the way into the bosom of the Father. So my question is the most practical question. Have you spent time this week getting to know him? I didn't ask you about how many times you've gone to church, and I haven't asked you how many chapters you've read. Uh, I am asking you how have you spent time getting to know him better? Remember, the goal of our study is that we may know him. We want to know him so that we may worship him in spirit and truth. <clears throat> Jeremy quoted, and I'm going to quote because it's one of the best. <clears throat> Philippians 3, 7, and 9, Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the surpassing value or worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, we've talked about Jesus saying that God is spirit and those who worship him or need to worship him in spirit and truth. Worship is really the, an English word and it comes from two words, we are which means <clears throat> like a, a quality and, or a heavy a weight. And the ship part or the skype means a shape or <clears throat> the shape of. So worship, it means to declare worth, to attribute worth. 
to see the value of something, the true, true value. Now, I tell the, I tell the story in, I tell it in one of my other studies because I, I used to teach it all the time when I taught respect in the classrooms to kindergartners. <laughs> but anyway, um, the story is about, uh, about a family um, who went to China. They were archaeologists. The mom and dad were archaeologists, and they had two boys. And after they, um, the boys grew up, they came back to America. And their parents stayed in China doing all their things. Um, when it came time to when the parents died, they, all of their stuff was sent back to the boys. And the boys just looked at everything and said, oh, that's nice, this is nice, this is nice, you know, or whatever. And anyway, they, um, unbeknownst to them, they had a main vase, but they didn't know it was a main vase. So they just put it in the cabinet. And anyway, so they had a friend who was an archaeologist that came 10 years after this and visit them, and, and, and they were saying, yeah, we have got a bunch of junk from my mother and my dad, and he said, well, let me see it. So they're uncovering all of this, and, and then they get to this Ming vase, and this guy almost like swallows his tongue. <laughs> he was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is a Ming vase. <laughs> and so, so they're like, oh really? It, is it worth like more than 50 cents? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> oh yeah. So uh, anyway, so the next time the, the friend comes over, he immediately, he walks into the room and the whole room has changed. He walks into the living room, there's this big light shining down on the main vase, which is now, in, because see, once they realized the worth of it, they treated it much differently, right? And I, so I was looking up on the internet, because that is just so much fun, and I said, in, in 2013, I'm not even kidding you, a rare Ming Dynasty vase that had been used as a doorstop in a New York home was sold for 1.3 million in auction. Isn't that amazing? See, because what you have, you don't realize the value. We need to go home and check our vases. So you, <laughs> you probably should check. So what is worship? Worship is when I understand what I've got here. Amen. When I understand that he's the creator, he made everything, and that he's sent his son to die for my sins so that he could restore fellowship loss, which was lost in Adam, and bring us back into this fellowship, this communion, this living communion. When I t get a little tiny glimpse of that, that's what real worship is, ladies. Mm -hmm. So how do I know when I'm worshiping? Well, I, I said this is from my study in the glory of God. But his, we, when we let his worth, now I use this word transvalue, but really what I mean is shake up our economy, our personal economy. So that knowing him personally and being in living communion with him becomes priceless. And how do I know what is the, what 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 am I really valuing? My attention, my time, my talents are the coin of my worthship of him. Because where my treasure is, that is where my heart is.